Social media is a modern invention, but social networks are a deeply embedded aspect of human culture. In fact, they may have played a significant role in the evolution of our species. In this episode of the American Scientist podcast, we're talking with Cecilia Padilla Iglesias, a doctoral candidate in evolutionary anthropology at the University of Zurich. She is combining diverse genetic, archaeological, ecological, and ethnographic techniques to uncover previously overlooked interconnections between ancient human populations. I'm Corey S. Powell, Special Projects Editor at American Scientist. Anthropologists have long established that the earliest humans came from Africa, but new discoveries are complicating the narrative of exactly how and where in Africa our ancestors originated. Cecilia Padilla Iglesias is melding environmental data and studies of modern African hunter-gatherer populations to learn more about the people who came long before us. Her models have indicated that the first modern humans lived in communities that were far more connected than previously thought, sharing both genetic material and cultural traditions. These networks may have created previously unappreciated links between widely separated groups in ancient Africa. Let's start with the the, uh, the period of human evolution that you focus on and why that period of human evolution. Well, when I started my PhD, I thought I was going to study um, contemporary hunting and gathering people, not because I think that they are someone from the past that just didn't change or anything, but to understand whether there were certain elements of things that are required from living as a hunter-gatherer, the fact that you need to move, the fact that you live at small densities to not exhaust resources and therefore that you need to maintain connections with other people, the fact that you need to share food because you don't know when you're going to find it. So I thought that my research was going to be based on contemporary hunter-gatherer people as a way of understanding which things would have had to be in place in the past um, for us to thrive as a species. Um, We had COVID, which prevented me from collecting data on on these populations i was going to work in central africa because at the moment they host the largest population of hunting and gathering people in the world and then it turns out that we knew very very little about the role of central african populations in human evolution so my starting question then became what is this time period you know when do these populations become such populations and then i guess there was where the modeling part comes to be i was trying to find whichever way possible. It's a really challenging environment. So a lot of it had to rely on modeling because colonialism and also rainforest soil quality, which is very acidic, decomposes stuff. And there's been a lot of mining exploitations. We have relatively very few remains compared to other areas in Africa. And then it turns out that kind of the time of human evolution in this area sort of dates back pretty much as early as the time that a species has been around, so around 200 and something, 150 to 200,000 years. So, yeah, then I got stuck there. <laughs> As you were conducting those studies, your views and your conclusions started to diverge from a lot of the conventional wisdom of what hunter-gatherer cultures are like. Can you tell me a little bit about how that process happened? As you were digging into it, at what point did you start to think there are some details here that just don't match the conventional models? <laughs> I, I guess the development of the ideas came from two places, one more theoretical and one sort of more derived from the evidence that I was encountering. The more theoretical one was from 
this there's been a super long tradition of paleoanthropology really rigorous in in east africa and there's been amazing fossil discoveries super old there's great great savanna environments there's also the museums of kenya and ethiopia and the authorities are increasingly more supportive of research so there's also a lot of infrastructure to do anthropological research and it's quite valued in society so traditionally when when and especially before the genetics era when when we were trying to develop models and especially when it became clear that humans had sort of come out of africa therefore that our species was somehow an african species the first thing that everybody said to do was to try to find the oldest african members of our species and obviously the more you look for it the more likely you are to find it so a lot of east african specimens really well preserved came to be also very ancient hominins have also come from east africa so it kind of made sense it's also closest to where we know that humans left africa because it's close to the levant and we know that some of the oldest out of africa fossils happen to be there so it kind of all made sense that great environment great preservation of fossils we must have come from there and left but somehow in the last 10 to 15 years even from the fossil evidence there were very very old human like things appearing in southern africa also in morocco one of the oldest they're not really homo sapiens but they need to be from our lineage these jebel irhud famous fossils so a lot of scientists started developing this um this model a lot especially as more genetic evidence happened to be and 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 we saw that like some of the also oldest genetic lineages were from other parts of africa from populations that now live in other parts of africa obviously we didn't know when they lived back then so they started developing this sort of theoretical model that maybe humans had come from more than one african place that really there was no evidence to say that we were coming from east africa anymore and i was reading this literature and then i was i had sort of two open questions the first one is that i was said to work with central african hunter gatherers and i didn't know where they fit in this model because all these pan african models didn't include the place that is i mean if there was one place that could connect moroccan fossils with southern africa with east african it was this part of the world and yet we didn't know anything about these populations and the other was this idea that my my supervisor andrea had been working for a while of hunter gatherers having very big networks created through mobility but also we don't know how big these networks really are so there i started looking at basically the genetic evidence that that i could find which was available and i'm still working on them on them because more and more stuff keeps coming out all the time and on environmental models that also kept being more and more reliable try to sort of put bits and bobs together okay where do contemporary central africans hunter gatherer live where are the fossils the few that we find in the past also found in central africa under which environmental conditions and is there any way in which i can link the two so then i started creating this model in which i basically decided to use data on contemporary hunter gatherers from central africa to try to see whether i could predict where we found fossils and genetic divergences in the past people were saying that the hunter gatherers that we have today there somehow people that had been pushed to rainforest where nobody wanted to live after we had big farming expansions in central africa and therefore that not meaningful for fitting the pieces of the puzzle but then i saw that like my model did fairly well <laughs> that i could that that actually you know places where we found ancient fossils in central africa um were very similar to the niches that cent current central africans occupy 
I also found that the moments in which my environmental model predicted sort of moments of fragmentation coincided with moments where I could see genetic splits between the populations that I was studying. And now I'm also doing some analysis where I can trace the evolution of certain words and certain objects, almost doing like a gene tree, but of objects, and that I can trace their evolution through the genetic tree fairly well as well. Um, even if these populations now speak languages that are completely unrelated and from other people. So it did seem that these people had a very, very deep past and a very, very deep past in which they were connected to one another and exchanging at least genetic material. And so I guess the question in which I'm working on and which speaks loud is if, you know, I have the whole stretch of Central Africa exchanging genes and culture, like they must have been also exchanging genes and culture with people of a bit further north, a bit further south and to the sides. This idea of connectivity networks is obviously very important in your research. I'd like to frame it a little bit more explicitly of, of, of what that means. And especially does genetic connectivity and cultural connectivity, do those things go hand in hand? Not necessarily. So the, uh, there is this idea and I think with the culture, it's easier to explain, perhaps, that in order to have a diverse set of solutions to complex problems, and, in, and companies fostered these ideas as well and applied when they are designing ways in which to structure their employees, two things are important. The first one is innovation, the emergence of these ideas. And the second one is this idea of elaborating, once you have an innovation, to transmit it around. So when I talk about connectivity being the key, perhaps, to genetic and cultural diversity and, and, and an important element of human evolution, is this idea that if you have different populations living in different environments that are somehow a little bit different, which for environmental or social reasons come into contact every once in a while, they are able to optimize these two processes, the transmission and the innovation, in a way that allows you to maintain enough diversity because you have separated populations that each of them are innovating their own ideas. And at the same time, when they come together and exchange those ideas, they are able to get the best of what the other ones have without, because if you did that from the beginning, if you have a, a population that is fully connected from the beginning, they would be either the most prestigious person or the idea that comes up first and everybody would get stuck on that one. It means that it allows you to explore a greater set of solutions and then build upon those solutions to, to be able to recombine. We teach a course here at our university and we, and, it, and, and I always find it really fascinating that we make students make these baskets to carry rice. And we do this experiment. We put a group of six people and then keep exchanging one person that is allowed to look at the ideas from the others. And year by year, the fully connected ones, they do a first grade bag at the beginning can carry a lot of rice, but then they, you know, they don't know. They start moving bobs and bits and pieces from that bag. And then the other ones are able to start with three different bags and then, you know, really take them apart and, and incorporate the good solutions. So when we talk about this at a continental scale, in terms of the relevance that this may have for human evolution, we're talking about things that are way less trivial. You know, it might be a full adaptation to exploit fishing resources. You have a completely fish adapted population that has optimized fishing methods. And then you may have another one that has like great, great antelope hunting techniques or um, a way of processing these yams. So you don't only get specialists within populations, but also between, and then you can recombine and even trade these ideas. And with genes, it happens in a similar way. I mean, there is this, you are able to access 
a greater gene pool, even if you're adapted to a local environment and you can prevent any negative effect from being, you know, stuck in a small population in a, in a way. But just uh, taking from your example, cultural transmission does not guarantee genetic transmission. There, there could be cultural reasons why the populations remain distinct while exchanging information. Definitely. And these populations, I mean, to this day are genetically distinct and arguably culturally distinct as well. And especially between hunter-gatherer societies, most of the rules tend to be in place to ensure exogamy, so to ensure that you don't have highly inbred populations. And even in the past, we see that ancient hunter-gatherer populations have way lower inbreeding rates than than agricultural ones. You know, often they are quite keen to exchange genes. Mm-hmm. Um, interestingly, we we did this study, and I think now it's it's a preprint available somewhere. I took the bits of DNA that I knew that had been exchanged and were exchanged between Central African hunter-gatherers, and I compared it to the structure of the diversity of their musical instruments on one side and of their foraging tools on the other. Okay, these two sets of cultural things said completely different purposes. I mean, potentially the musical instrument thing might serve as an identity thing, you know, people coming together, playing their instruments, you know. Also, it's not contingent to a local ecology, because even if I live in the west side of the forest and you live in the east, we most may want to play the drum. Um, whilst the foraging tools might be very specific to, to, your, to your little foraging niche, like if you're living by a lake and stuff. And I could see exactly that, that if I did correlation tests between the structure of genetic diversity and the structure of musical instrument diversity, that it matched almost perfectly. That means that populations that were exchanging one were really exchanging the other. And even the words that they were using was for the foraging tools, there was no relationship at all. And it's probably something like what you're suggesting, that it just may not make sense to <laughs> to use what yeah, to use what someone in a different environment is using. A consistent theme I see in your papers is that you see deeper and wider levels of connectivity than what's commonly represented in the scientific literature. What is it that people have been overlooking? Or were there blind spots that were kind of keeping people from taking this sort of bigger, broader view? Probably traditionally, for example, people that were working with hunter-gatherers, ethnographers, so they would go to a spot, follow a group, um, but they would live there only like a couple of months and just really note everything about the rituals, about the, the physical appearance of, of a population. But nobody would spend long enough somewhere to really get to this like big, big aspect of mobility of like how far are people moving or they wouldn't relate it because on the other hand, I mean, people looking at things like ochre transport or the or comparative archaeologists looking at comparative pottery analysis and, and things like this. They have been hinting at the fact that people were using, I mean, we know that people use non-local materials for a very long time. I mean, we found um, shells, shell beads in the middle of the continent where there's no shells. So it must be that people were trading. But Perhaps we've overlooked the whole field, the, the scale at which it's not, it's maybe not an anecdotal thing, is that there are big networks in place. Maybe it's not just the consequence of people being friendly or stuff or people moving around. Maybe those networks are the reason that people move around to maintain them going. And maybe they are way bigger than we ever thought. And that's, I guess, now what finding out. <laughs> You'd flagged three papers in particular that you were interested in talking about. And 
I thought it'd be, it'd be interesting to go through them in, in sequence. Uh, the one that seems kind of the broadest and most synthetic and probably following directly from where we are in our conversation is the one uh, population interconnectivity over the past 120,000 years explains distribution and diversity of Central African hunter-gatherers. And maybe you could just sort of walk me through the concept of that paper and just kind of build on what we've been talking about here so you can get in a little more of the specifics of how you investigate these questions. So in this paper, we were really trying to get to this idea of whether we could really find evidence for hunter-gatherers in Central Africa having maintained their niche for a long time. So we had the advantage that people had in 2016, uh, there had been a team of researchers that had collected very, very accurate data on the location of hunter-gatherer camps all over Central Africa. So we had almost a thousand individual camp locations in in Central Africa where people were, were living. And then they had built a model to understand the environmental and social, by social I mean presence of other populations and stuff like that, uh, drivers of the presence of hunter-gatherers there. And obviously, I can't have data on social stuff in the past. So I was like, okay, if I use only the environmental data, how good a model can I build for the present population? And it turns out that a fairly good one, that, that we could build quite accurate predictive models only using the environmental data to know where hunter-gatherers were. What I did is, okay, then I'm going to take all evidence of ancient hunter-gatherer occupation in the area, and I'm going to try to see if the model that I built can fits this data as well. So if there is evidence that the same series of factors that predict where I find hunter-gatherers in the present can predict whether I find hunter-gatherers there in the past which or their remains, right. um, using climate from the time. So I could trace. So then I could build, in a sense, a, a continuous model using sort of past climate models saying, okay, Imagine that if I, I, my model predicts that there will be hunter-gatherers if it's above 25 degrees, an altitude of 500 meters and precipitation of less than 2,000 millimeters per meter squared yearly. So then I can see as time changes in which places those conditions are going to be fulfilled. And therefore, my model will say, OK, here is likely that there's hunter-gatherers. So then I can see, OK, I can put my evidence of ancient hunter-gatherer remains and see, did my model predict that there were hunter-gatherers here where I find the sites and the opposite, where I don't find sites, did my model predict that I shouldn't find them? And it did seem to, to fit also fairly accurately with the ancient data as a sort of third way of confirming this stuff. We know now from a lot of genetic analysis, because we're sampling more and more populations, we can build gene trees or gene networks in the past, we can estimate when different populations from the present stopped exchanging genes with, with one another. And when and even now there's more and more technology that allows us to estimate when they gain connectivity back. So making the assumption that roughly these populations had a similar area where they live now, because I had my model was making these maps, I could see whether my map, whether in moments where the genetic model predicted that there would be splits, that my map predicted that, would, that there would be a spatial split also between, between populations. So mm -hmm. that was a way of confirming that somehow these environmental processes in Central Africa did seem to fit fairly well the, the other bits of history that we had, that they could predict these sort of gains and losses of connectivity over the past 120,000 years 
and this was that time because climate models at the reliability that I wanted to use them, which was like really very fine grained because I wanted to consider really the, the radius of hunter gatherer camps that they use. And that was 20 kilometers, which is in a, at a continental scale is very, very small. Um, they were the most reliable that I could get. 20 kilometers is a, that's a pretty fine scale for the, for the climate modeling. Then in terms of, of time resolution, are you looking at things over 10,000 year chunks of time? Like what is it, what is the temporal resolution that you can look at for a question like this? In, in a study like this, the, the goal in a sense was not to be, you know, like don't take my estimate of a particular year by any means as, as conclusive is more of, of time interval. So we have period beginning of Holocene, end of Holocene, after the Bantu expansion. Do we find, we also in this study looked for evidence of continued connectivity after the Bantu expansion. So to see whether these populations had remained in contact after other non-hunter-gatherer populations had appeared in the region and it seemed like they did. And for this, the genetic evidence is more reliable. But when we go as far back as 100,000 years, 50,000 years, the climate models are at 2,000 year resolutions and that's pretty much as good as it gets. I'd like to talk the big picture implications of that study, that you were looking at populations that, that sort of maintained integrity. They weren't just displaced populations. Is that right? Yeah, I mean, there is just no evidence that these populations are somehow new or displaced into the region after farming expansion. That would have been in the last 5,000 years. So, so then, yeah, so so what does that tell you about the cultural and genetic evolutionary implications of that, that continued connectivity? Besides the huge diversity itself, we know that African populations are genetically more diverse than than any population outside of Africa by far. Uh, and within Africa, um, the Southern African Khoisan speakers and the Central African hunter-gatherers are the two most diverse populations that we have. Besides being this massive power bank of genetic diversity, it's almost like, to me, it's this evidence for this pan-African network, because it's like, okay, we really have conclusive evidence for people being in East Africa for like a really long time, people being in South Africa. We have less fossils, but we have really good genetic evidence. We have really good archaeological evidence. We have evidence that stuff was going on in the North. And this whole area in Central Africa that is huge, also with people moving and exchanging and stuff. So it really speaks to the fact that our species was really this thing that created from this huge exchange happening all across Africa. Does that extend to the idea that when you had these sort of successive waves of movement out of Africa, that those waves in turn could have been more diverse or you know more complex than what people had expected? Is that am I extrapolating too much? Yeah, I wouldn't speak so much about um, <laughs> about the the out of Africa migration because I've also followed a lot of the models of of this out of Africa expansion. And we know that there there were like little sort of, I'd call them expeditions um, <laughs> outside of Africa that, that quite a few of them happened. But it is true that when we build models to, to try to predict sort of genetic diversity or even morphological diversity outside of Africa, from many different research groups that have attempted this, really per consistently the best fitting models tend to be the ones where the majority of the diversity that we observe out of Africa comes from a single expansion. Probably there was a lot of connectivity and recombination going on 
between the people that were about in in the edge of Africa. And we also know that, I mean, if we look at the genetic makeup of Eastern and Southern African populations now, they also have a lot of Europe, what we call European back migration. So of this back and forth going on. But for what someone like me um, from European descent concerns, probably you could trace fairly well my 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 descent or my ancestry to an out of Africa pulse. Okay, let's drill down to a more specific aspect of your research. Focus on a paper about uh, central place foraging. I'd love to talk about sort of what exactly is central place foraging and, and sort of what, what is its importance in these hunter-gatherer social networks? So it's important for a lot of things. Uh, <laughs> it's something that it's an aspect of hunter-gatherer social life that has been studied a lot from traditionally from an anthropological perspective because it's one of these behavioral things in which we're different from let's say great apes so when a group of chimpanzees is in the forest they are also territorial and if they find food they will just like grab it and consume it at where they find and then when the night comes build a sleeping nest where they are in and then abandon it and people working with human hunter-gatherers, also from an archaeological perspective, because this comes really from the archaeological literature, they they always found that people didn't just consume food when they when and where they found it, but that they would take it back to a to a central place or camp where 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 they would share it with others and consume it together. So it's a it's a huge aspect of of hunter-gatherer social life, first of all, because it allows division of labor. So you have people that remain at the camp, people that forage, and then they bring back the food for everybody. So it's this element of cooperation that we often say in anthropology that separates humans from, from perhaps other members of our family tree. It allows people to survive even when they don't forage, because one day I get yours and one day you get mine. So it allows people to tell stories, to talk about one another. So there's this huge aspect of like reconvening back with the same people um, that, that can potentially have a lot of implications. So an interesting aspect that we were exploring in this paper is not just the, what were the implications of doing this, going back to a single place or not, but variation within that spectrum. Because we know that hunter-gatherer societies around the world vary a lot into how much time they spend in these central places um, and how far away from them are they willing to travel, to forage and then bring back. And we know that this depends a lot in ecological parameters. So if there's a lot, you can forage close to you, you won't go so far away. If there is less, you will deplete the things that are close by faster. Therefore, you can you potentially need to move your home base, move your home base earlier in order to, to not starve. So we built a model in which we were asking the question of there is really good evidence to suggest that this central place pattern is a behavioral response to environmental um, change in humans. First of all, what are the implications that this changing behavior compared to, let's say, great apes would have for the kinds of social networks that early humans would have been embedded into? And the second question was like, okay, if we find differences in the network properties that these networks would have, what would have been the consequences for cultural transmission? Which is one thing that we know that human societies are exceptionally good at doing. So we build this model in which people were moving based on resources. We also based it on previous models in the literature. And then we 
we calculated the efficiency of the resulting networks. And again, we found that the hunter-gatherer-like way of moving compared to the sort of, let's say, grade ape-like way of moving led to networks that, again, revealed these signs of like being partially connected so that they had very densely connected nuclei equivalent to what we would observe of like camps or, or groups of camps that then would be embedded in these large regional networks. We also then decided to run these, we call it contagion simulations because they come from epidemiology, but essentially they assess how fast and how far a new innovation or a new idea travels in a network. Mm-hmm. And we found again that the hunter-gatherer-like networks were particularly efficient at transmitting fast these these new innovations in a way that it could reach the the network node. So it almost as if they were adapted for for being efficient at diffusing something that was advantageous across a network. And then we also played around what happens when your environment is more heterogeneous or what happens when your environment is more homogeneous, like, you know, and, and found again that I mean, as we would expect, that a more heterogeneous but rich environment would facilitate this information transmission and this network efficiency, because there's also the element that it would sustain more people at a given place. So you also have greater chances that people are going to come up with something useful uh, that then they can transmit. My impression is that your approach is somewhat unusual of looking at this from a network perspective rather than from maybe a sort of a more traditional narrative of you know sort of cultural transmission or or artifact similarity what were you, what were you doing here that was a little bit i i think it's new or unique way at at asking these questions and for that i have to give the credits to my boss who <laughs> and she what she did which was an incredibly good idea in my opinion um was a few years ago she developed this little um it looks like a smartwatch she she had been working with two uh, populations of of um, hunter gatherers, one in the Philippines and one in Congo as well, and she gave them these these smartwatches that tracked who did people interact with whom in less than three meter proximity. So she had um, in the end all the people that people had interacted with and also the frequency at which they interacted with. So they had in a way a real life network of what these people were doing. And obviously she had collected all sorts of data and she had been working with these people for for a long time. They had collected data on health and parasitic load. They had collected data on plants, knowledge that they had so they could really test quantitatively, you know, how did different things, not just culture, but also disease or they also have a paper on microbiome, how really traveled through through a real network. So I do think that it opens a possibility to to quantitatively assess, really, you know, are these networks adapted for something? And if so, what is it? Uh, can you tell me again the, the name of your uh, of your advisor? Or Andrea Migliano. Yeah, she's my PhD supervisor. Okay. So you had uh, you had alluded earlier to uh, to your to work in the Bantu region. And looking at the the Central African hunter gatherers, maybe we can talk a little bit about kind of how that built on the ideas we've been discussing. So I, in a way, I want to. I mean, I think models are great, but sometimes it's also great to have data to test them against. Um, so I, I guess that's where my work there um, becomes important. And I've been working with two students at uh, the University of Marien Gabi, which is the main university of the Republic of Congo, that have been serving that yeah, that have been 
working also with the local populations there for a while and we to keep asking these questions of like you know how are people moving around what for what are they exchanging is to continue this this project but but gathering real empirical evidence which i think that's such a fine scale we we just don't really have so this both sort of informs your your models of the ancient populations and sort of acts as a reality test against your your hypotheses of 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 how they behaved or sort of how to interpret these correlations yeah of course i i also want to collect more um genetic data because actually we don't have a lot of really good genetic data from from the republic of congo so i think that will also be an important addition to explain population history but there are things like how far people can walk in a day how far people are willing to walk in a day um how do people structure foraging trips that are surprisingly conserved both in the literature and across populations so being able to collect fine grain data and quantitatively collect this data in in a huge population can point as those sort of almost physiological barriers the the, the generalities but also the differences depending on different ecological particularities of each region or things like this so there's some deep seated aspects of human nature where we all say that's too far i'm not going to do that yeah i mean of course it would be if you have to walk further to hunt than the calories you're going to get from whatever it is that you hunt given the probability that you don't hunt anything then you wouldn't do it because it wouldn't pay off right. so yeah people have worked surprisingly hard in getting at those numbers but we also need a few still you touched earlier uh, on the idea of, of computer modeling uh, but i'd like to sort of get to that a little bit more overtly because i know this is a paper that you have in the works trying to put some of these ideas into more of a computer modeled context can you talk a little bit about so where you're going with that work and kind of what you hope to achieve there i mean the great thing about computer models is that they allow you to explicitly test mechanisms if i just rely on a statistical model and i will, i just look at okay where i think that these people because this river was dry i don't know 7000 years ago they stopped exchanging genes and therefore i compare gene exchange before the river dried gene exchange after the river dried now it's like yeah there is a statistical difference i mean it could have been the river but it could have been seven other things um so with the the great thing about computational modeling is that you can really create a world in which the only thing that that, that changes is that river and then if you have sufficient processes in place that sort of mimic the real world you can really see how big an impact th- the river drying would have had and then you can test it against your data then you're like okay that's my model capture more you know that's my model capture more or less what i have so i think it's as a sort of proof of concept is like a really good idea you know andrea thinks that or proposes and hypothetical scenario but not so hypothetical okay these these networks must be really really important to foster cultural complexity so what can you do about it how can you test it and what they did the whole group is that they simulated something simple like the development of a complex medicinal plant medicine that involved you know innovating through different plants and recombining them and when you got the right combinations you could make a more complex medicine and then they 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 simulated that process in different types of networks in a network that was fully connected with the same number of nodes and edges but in a different structure so they simulated a network that was fully connected they simulated a network that was just random where every edge and every node could be connected or not in a completely random fashion 
And then they run the simulation on the real networks that they had from their, from their hunter-gatherers. So they could compare directly how did the network structure, not, not varying anything else, affected the speed at which you would reach the right medicine. And they found that indeed it seemed like the hunter-gatherer version was much more efficient than, than a random configuration or that a configuration that was fully connected. So then she could say, yeah, there's something mechanistic in the structure of this network that makes it efficient at discovering a complex solution through recombinations. And I think for my work, especially when you add the spatial component, it also opens an entire new realm of, of possibilities that you can ask. I mean, what strikes me about all this research, and, and part of the reason I was so excited to talk to you about <laughs> it, I mean, you're talking about two of the most essential things that we think about when we consider like what it means to be human, you know, the exchange of ideas and the development of culture, and that you're exploring areas that seem to be either underexplored or in some cases, perhaps misunderstood in the in the literature. I'd love, just in your words, you know, your sort of big picture description of you know, what, what, you're, what you're learning here or sort of how you interpret what these studies are telling you about the emergence of these two big aspects of human distinctiveness. Uh, let's, say, let's say development rather than emergence. Yes, so that we're, 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 we're in your wheelhouse. Perhaps the, the key that, that they reveal is because an important element in order to build up on something is not having to reinvent the wheel the whole time. And I think it's something that we've overlooked a lot, except for there, there have been many models of like the importance of population size in order to sustain a baseline of diversity. I mean, people working in conservation, and they look at this, you know, how many individuals do you have in order for the gene pool of a species to not be considered uh, that they're on the verge of extinction? So I think there is something really fundamental at the beginning of culture of just being able to preserve enough diversity so that you can build upon it instead of having to reinvent the wheel every time, especially given that people are cooperating more to share food to, because they have this foraging niche. So Perhaps the key in, in many ways is the fact that we were able to, through keeping connected and through keeping exchanging, to build a baseline repertoire that then allowed people to work from step two rather than from step one every single time. You know, that when the old wise person that knew how to open uh, termites died, that not just his son that nobody paid attention to knew how to do it and then that he got lost, but that, that, that you had enough people that had acquired this trade that they, they could build upon it. The um, sort of, in a way, social network aspect of it has been overlooked. But when you put it together with all the research that, you know, is way more extensive that has been done on teaching on how humans imitate everything way more than any other species that on how humans communicate um, more than every other species. If you put that in the right network, then it probably fuels this this exchange and then in in a way the inevitable development of culture. So you yourself are becoming part of the uh, the larger exchange. Hopefully. <laughs> um, well, listen, this was a this was a fabulous conversation. Uh, before I go, you know, is there anything? If there's anything else you want to you want to talk about, or you think that's sort of important to understand about this research? Love to hear it. I mean, for me, it's really this idea that, like, in, I guess we're all captivated. You know, what what is it? to be human. And I guess I'm one of these people that has never been convinced, maybe because I worked with great apes when I was a, I don't know, first year university student for like six months. I got this internship with every, I, I was so lucky. I, I had this internship with where I had to film 
gorillas, chimpanzees, bonobos, and orangutans in one of the biggest zoos in Europe for the whole day. And then when I came out of it, I was like, it can't be that we're smarter than everybody else. <laughs> so, <laughs> um, uh, th so that's when you're like, okay, well, maybe, maybe, it's, maybe it's networks. <laughs> yeah, it needs to be something else. <laughs> Okay. No, that's great. Listen, you made a lot of time for me and I really appreciate that. And this was a fun and very enlightening conversation. So I, I appreciate also just all the clarity of the explanations and your, and your patience. No, thank you for, for inviting me. You've been listening to a podcast from American Scientist Magazine, published by Sigma Xi, the Scientific Research Honor Society. I'm Corey S. Powell, Special Projects Editor at American Scientist. Thank you for joining us.